Dewey. Okay, let's get set up here. Can you hear me? Hear me okay? Hear me okay? Hear me okay? Hear me now? Hear me now? Hear me now? Is it on? It's not coming through. There. There we go. Okay. You hear me now? Okay. Open your Bibles to Psalm 145, please, if you have one with you. I don't have a clicker today, so I'm going to do a verbal clicker over to Sherwin, who's the little guy in the pit over here. So if you hear me say next slide, Sherwin, you know what to do. So my name is Mark Steberg. Welcome, everybody. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. Uh, I know it can be unnerving to visit a church for the first time. Uh, I came out to this church for the first time 15 years ago or so, maybe 16 years ago. And I remember what it was like. Who are all these people? Why are they so happy? Why are they hugging me? Uh, why do they want to be my buddy? Uh, but just trust me after 15 years that we will grow on you if you let us. Because uh, I am still here. We are a family of believers that love Jesus. We love his word. And we are on a mission, right? We're on a mission to bring Jesus to a lost world and to those who are hurting and those who are less fortunate and to help each other to finish the race here on earth. So we're coming in for a landing today on this sermon uh, series called Unlimited, which is on Psalm 145. And I don't know about you, it's been an amazing journey of getting to know God better. You know, I, I remember Brian Craig kicked us off on the first session by talking about the grace of God. God is gracious, and by his grace, he gives us different gifts, and he expects us to use those gifts to faithfully serve others. Uh, and then Steve Marici, our evangelist, our, our legion leader, then preached about God's compassion. He has compassion on us, even though we can have adulterous hearts at times. And if you were in that particular sermon, you remember, God has compassion, so don't be a gomer. <laughs> I like that. Brian then last week talked about how God is slow to anger, but he's also a God of justice, and he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, uh, but God is slow to anger. We shouldn't, though, be slow to surrender to him either. So I don't know about you. Again, I've learned a ton about God and who he really is, and if you could go to the next slide, Sherwin. Psalm 145 might be hard to see, so you might want to follow along in your Bibles, but starting in verse 1, it says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. So we're going to bring this series home today by talking about how God is rich in love. You know, there's different translations of the Bible. There's the Holman's translation, which I've been starting to read a little bit at Steve Marici's uh, bequest. And it says in the Holman's translation that God is great in faithful love. The New Century Version, which is the one written on the third grade level, which is my favorite one because I actually get it, <laughs> simply says that God is full of love. 
the American Standard Version eloquently says that God is great in loving kindness. So a lot of different words, but you boil it all down that God's all about love. And I'll start with a confession. So I confess that when I read Bible passages about love, I can sometimes just skim over them. I cannot let them really marinate and sink in. And I'm not sure if you can relate, but, but God's love is something that I hear so much about and I read so much about that it can almost, in some ways, become cliche, can it? And yeah, of course God's loving. I know that. Now tell me something I don't know about God. And it can begin to lose its meaning. But, but really, I've thought a lot and I've prayed a lot about God's love over the last few weeks. And I'm convinced now that God's love is something that we need to spend more time on. Because as much as we read about it and we talk about God's love, I'm not sure we always get it. I know, I'm talking to myself here as well. So I just have three points today. Next slide, Sherwin. The first point is very simply, God is love. Second point is, so what are we afraid of? And the third point is, follow the most excellent way. In 1 John, next slide, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is what? Love. God is love. So the Apostle John tells us something here about God that's very simple but very profound at the same time. It's that God is love. And as, again, Steve pointed out in his lesson, we don't need theologians to help us figure that out. That's pretty straightforward, right? Love comes from God. If we don't understand what love is, then we don't understand who God is. And it's that simple. If we want to know God better, we need to study out who, what love really is. Now, if you just step back and think about love. So the world today would have you think that love is all about sappy, sentimental cupids and hearts, right? I remember, you know, in my mind, it was before I knew the Bible, it was really about, you know, I see somebody, I find them attractive, and it's love at first sight. I loved her at first sight. I once had that view of love. But I didn't become a true follower of Jesus until, you know, about 26 years old. And I was out of college. Um, I was what we would call a disciple of Jesus here in our church, a follower of Jesus. And prior to that, prior to being a disciple, I told you, I would have told you at that time before I was a disciple that, yeah, I believed in God. But my life really didn't show it. You know, in retrospect, you know, I had no clue what the Bible really said about love or things like sin. I had no idea really what Jesus was really about. I knew of him, but I didn't really understand him. And through high school and college, I made the mistake that I think a lot of young people make. It's that I thought in my mind, I've got my whole life to study the Bible. When I grow up and get married and have kids, I'll take them to church and we'll start studying the Bible then. Until then, I'm going to have a fun time. So I didn't have any biblical basis for who God really was. So I would think to myself, you know, as long as I am a good person, more or less, you know, I can still get drunk, I can still sleep with my girlfriend, I can still, you know, hate people. Um, and I thought I could still do that because, you know, God's good. He'll forgive me. I'll still get to heaven. I'm still a good person deep down. But I was essentially creating my own version of God that better suited my lifestyle. 
and that really was the God that let me do what I wanted to do. And I didn't want any inconvenient truths when I was a young person. In reality, my, my God was whatever I lusted after, and in my case, it could be women. And I had a number of immoral relationships before becoming a disciple, and in many ways, I would make my girlfriends the center of my world. They were my God. And I remember for the first time when I told a girlfriend in college that I love you. I had no idea what love was at that age. Um, I hadn't studied the Bible to understand true love, but I just had these really strong feelings that I thought were love. I mistaked for love. And I think that's what the world does. The world tends to mistake love for an emotion. And we can have powerful attractions to other people that bring up all sorts of deep feelings. But my friends, love is not a feeling. It's not. Because feelings eventually pass. And then reality sets in. And that's why so many people who once thought they were madly in love become disillusioned when the feelings of attraction eventually fade. They fall out of love. They go looking for that attraction somewhere else. So love is much, much more than a feeling. You know, the Greek word that John uses for love, I'm sure a lot of you have heard it, the Greek word is agape. Agape. Agape means selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. And agape is actually more, in some ways, it's more of a decision, or it's more of an action than it is a feeling. Again, it's not sappy, sentimental love. It's not about physical attraction. It's not about even friendship or brotherly affection. It's not about the bonds even between family members. Agape is about giving somebody what they really need, regardless of what it may cost you personally. C.S. Lewis called agape a selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of the other. So again, agape is giving someone what they really need. Not necessarily what they want, but what they need. There was an English philosopher, um, some of you maybe have heard of him, his name is Mick Jagger. And he once said, you can't always get what you want. No, no, no. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you'll find you, you get what you need, right? So were the Rolling Stones thinking about agape when they wrote that song? I don't know. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt, all right? And I guess God can speak through rock stars too. I was reading about the Rolling Stones and preparing for this, and Keith Richards, lead guitarist for the Rolling Stones, true, I don't know if this is true or not. Rumor has it that when his father died, he cremated his father and he snorted the ashes like cocaine. Now, is that agape love? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Sorry, I digress. But this idea of agape, let's go back to agape. Bring it back. Come on, back, 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 back. The idea of agape is crucial to understanding the nature of God. Because God is agape. He's selfless. He's sacrificial. He's unconditional in his relationship. And he doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Have you ever looked back on your life and wondered or reflected on some of the things that you asked God for but you didn't get? 
I know we all have a list of those things. It's because God is agape. He doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what he knows we need. You know, one of the most loving things that God ever did for me was he passed me up for a job. And there was a sales job in, in Orange County in 1996 that, that I wanted so badly, so badly that I could taste it. I wanted it. I didn't get the job. And I was devastated. I thought my world was coming to an end. I thought my career was over. But it was actually God's love in action in retrospect. Because about a year later, I got a sales job in L.A. And through that job, I met this beautiful young woman named Mia Randolph. Oh. She walked in the room and a shaft of light came down. And I said, she will be mine. No, but I wasn't a Christian. I was not a Christian yet. So you can imagine my thoughts weren't all pure. I was scheming. I was scheming about how I could get her to date me. But before I could muster up the courage to ask her out, she invited me to church because she was already a disciple of Jesus. And I accepted her invitation. I met with some men in the church and I studied the Bible with them, a personal Bible study that got right after where I was with God. And I decided to be a disciple of Jesus. I was baptized on January 10th of 1999. But unbeknownst to me, you know, after I was a Christian, Mia put me on a two-year probation <laughs> to make sure that I would be faithful to God. That's the kind of woman she is. And then she agreed finally to date me. Um, and we were married in 2001. And today we have two handsome, amazing young sons, Andy and Ethan. And all of that, all of that, because he loved me enough not to give me a job in Orange County, but to give me a different job where he knew I would meet the woman who would invite me to church. And we have so many examples. You all have examples of ways that God has loved you that you didn't understand at the time, but you look back and you get it, right? Look at the Bible, too. I was just reflecting, just thinking through all the stories of the Bible. There are so many examples of God's love in the Bible where he gave his people what they needed, not what they wanted. He gave Adam and Eve garments of skin that he made himself, even though they had sinned against him. Were they asking for that? They would just use the fig leaves, probably. But he gave them garments of skin. He gave them what they needed. He gave Cain a mark of protection so that he wouldn't be killed, even though he had killed his brother. He gave Noah the materials to build an ark and a blueprint to build an ark so that he'd be saved from the flood. He gave Abraham a son to be an heir, even though he was a very old man. He brought the Israelites out of slavery, and he gave them all the riches of Egypt when they left. And he gave them manna and quail in the desert and sustained them for years, even though they were grumbling against him. He gave Moses a staff that, that turned into a snake. How cool would that be? To get Pharaoh's attention and get his officials' attention. He gave a slingshot to David with five stones to help kill Goliath. He gave Samson a jawbone, a jawbone, to kill a thousand Philistines. He gave Gideon 300 men that drank like dogs to kill a horde of Midianites. You know, he gave Daniel lions that weren't hungry, so they wouldn't eat him. <laughs> he gave Jonah a fish with indigestion that spit him out. He gave Nehemiah a letter from the king to give him all the material to rebuild the wall. He gave the biggest persecutor of the first century church, Saul, a blinding vision that forever changed him. Right? 
He preached the, the, the message to the known world. He gave Peter a, a, a coin out of a fish's mouth to pay the temple tax. He gave 5,000 people bread and fish to stay in a remote place so they could hear Jesus preach. And the ultimate agape love, God sent his son to earth to be tortured and to be executed in your place and in my place. And no one was asking God to do that. He knew what it would take to get our attention, right? He knew what we needed to be saved. And God in his love, he gives us what we need, even when we don't understand it at the time. A jawbone? <laughs> Seriously? And just in case the idea of, of agape isn't clear, Paul spells it out beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13. If you could forward, Sherwin. You know, it's, it's, I had some fun with this scripture because it's a famous scripture. You hear it read at a lot of weddings. It's a love scripture. But since we know God is love, it's kind of fun just to replace the word love with God in this scripture. Because God and love are the same thing, right? So God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. God never fails. God is love. He gives us what we need. Do we need patience? I do. Do we need kindness? Yes. Do we need a God that keeps no record of wrongs? Yes. Do we need protection? Uh-huh. Do we need a God who never fails? Absolutely. He gives us what we really need. But this is where I think we need to be very careful. Because sometimes we can get circumstances in our life, suffering in our life, that, that seems overwhelming, right? And then sometimes we can begin to question why God is making us suffer. And if we're not on our guard spiritually, we can begin to question the love of God. God, did I really need to get cancer? God, did I really need to marry a spouse that cheated on me? God, do I really need to see my child and my loved one suffering? I mean, think about Job. He's a faithful man that God esteemed highly. So much that God actually boasted about Job before Satan. And what did Satan do to try to tempt Job to curse God? He made him suffer and suffer intensely. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost his friends. Even his own wife told him to curse God and die. How many of you have heard it said that, you know, when you're suffering, God won't give you more than you can bear? How many of you have heard that? Okay, I've heard it. I've had people tell me that. I've said that to people. But you know what? In, in more retrospect, you know, I'm here to tell you today that God will give you more than you can bear. He will. Because he's God. And the phrase, he won't give you more can he, than you can bear, that... that is a misquote of a scripture. If you go to the next, the next uh, slide, Sherwin. That comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, where Paul's not, he's actually talking about temptation. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So again, Paul's talking about temptation. He's not talking about suffering. When we're tempting, he'll, we have a way out. We don't have to sin. That's our decision to sin, right? But God does not give us a way out of suffering. 
He, does, he never promises us that our lives will be pain-free. So in fact, God does give us more than we can bear at times. Because if he didn't, we really wouldn't need God, would we? And we all have times in our life when, when we, we just don't know how we're going to go on. And all we can do at those moments is to close our eyes and hold God's hand and have him take us through it. Uh, my grandmother is here today. I think a lot of you have met her. She's sitting right over here. Her, her name is Dorothy. My dad's mom. Uh, we call her Grandma Dot. I like Dot better than Dorothy. She married her childhood friend, Art, um, after my, her first husband, my grandfather, died in 1991. And Dot and Art had uh, 15 or 20 great years of marriage together. They, they had a lot of fun. They traveled all over the country. They had a camper that they pulled behind their truck, and they took it all over the country, well into Art's 80s. It was amazing to see him do this. But in the last you know, five years or so, Art has suffered from increasingly severe dementia. And he's now 97, and he needs 24-hour care. And until just a few weeks ago, uh, my grandmother, who's 90, has been Art's only caregiver. And she's had to dress him. She's had to feed him. She's had to help him use the restroom. She's had to bathe him. She's had to help him back to bed when he gets up multiple times throughout the night to wander around. She's had to listen to the same joke that he tells over and over and over and over. Where was Moses when the lights went out? That's what he asked. And I'll tell you the punchline later. But she's cared for him until she was physically exhausted. She had a minor stroke herself and she just couldn't go on. Couldn't safely go on. So how did a 90-year-old woman have the strength to do what many young people couldn't even do? Why has she stayed faithful to her husband? Because she's relied on the strength that only God can supply. And has it been hard? Yes. Did she ask for this kind of suffering? No. Has her suffering brought her closer to God? I'd say it probably has. Ask her. So giving us more than we can bear is a way that God actually loves us. We need to depend on him. We need to understand his goodness. And sometimes we won't do that unless we're put in a situation where God is the only way out. God is love. He's agape. He gives us what we need and he will get us through. Which leads to my second point. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And if we're honest, we've all been afraid of something, right? Something that terrifies you. Something that causes you to freeze up. Something that might even cause you to forget that God is with you. You know, I made the mistake of watching the movie Nightmare on Elm Street when I was 12 years old. And I was absolutely horrified. Next slide, Sherwin. I was horrified of Freddy Krueger, that guy on the left. I was also scared of clowns. That's why I put the clown up there. But I was horrified of Freddy Krueger, this guy, this, this villain in this movie. And I had a paper route when I was 12 years old. And I had to get up early in the morning when it was still dark. And I had to deliver newspapers down dark streets to dark houses. Elm Street, yes, there was an Elm Street, actually. And in my mind, my mind would start working, you know, and I'm 12 years old, and I would start seeing things in the shadows. And I was convinced that Freddy Krueger was going to jump out, pull me in, and begin to slash me with that glove with the razor-sharp fingers, and that I would be cut to bits, and I would die in the snow. 
And then I realized in retrospect, you know, if Freddie were a real person, he probably wouldn't live in rural Iowa where I grew up. <laughs> so, but I was scared. It was real irrational fear. And I grow, as I grow older, I'm not afraid of Freddie anymore. Not Freddie Krueger. Freddie Paloma maybe, but not Freddie Krueger. <laughs> but now I think about what am I scared of. I, believe it or not, I'm actually kind of shy. I mean, I, I'm sometimes afraid of people and I, I'm afraid I'm going to say something dumb or that people will reject me for something that I say. I'm in all these meetings throughout the week with these executive, really smart people, much smarter than me, and I'm just intimidated and I'm afraid, and sometimes I just keep quiet. But again, it's irrational fear, right? People already know I'm dumb, so I have nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> but how does God really think about fear? How does God think about fear? First John chapter 4, back to Truman. 4.18, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So when we understand God's love, there is really nothing to be afraid of. As we just discussed, God gives us what we need, and he'll get us through. And when you really understand and believe that, when you believe the love of God, there's nothing to fear, because you know that God is working for the good, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Said differently, if we live in fear, then we're missing the love of God. Because perfect love drives out fear. So what are you afraid of today? Top 10 fears of Americans. Next, next uh, slide, I looked at this on Google. Number one, I was actually surprised, fear of flying. Now I fly quite a bit and the planes are packed, so there's not a lot of people that are afraid of flying, but that's the number one fear. People always have that vision of the plane going down there over to the right. That's the number one fear of Americans. Number two, fear of public speaking. Number three, fear of heights. Number four, fear of the dark. Number five, fear of intimacy. Number six, fear of death. Number seven, fear of failure. Number eight, fear of rejection. Number nine, fear of spiders. Surprised that wasn't higher up the list. Number 10, fear of commitment. Let me get this right. People are, would rather die than be intimate. Is that true? I don't know. People are afraid of things, right? These are real fears. These are the top 10 fears. What are you afraid of? Whatever you are afraid of, you have the remedy, right? And the remedy is the love of God. Next slide, Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Think about what's waiting for us if we stay faithful. Eternal glory with Jesus. Imagine eternity. Just think about it. I mean, just contemplate that. Billions and billions and billions of years, and then you're just getting started with God. It makes our current sufferings for a few years on earth seem rather trivial, doesn't it? But what are you afraid of? Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, God is love. He gives us what we need. If he gave us his own son, he's going to give us everything else that we need. So what are you afraid of? Romans 8, 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor the powers, any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have the love of God. He always gives us what we need. And nothing on heaven or on earth or under the earth can separate us from that love. So what are you afraid of? Because perfect love, it drives out fear. 
And just remember what is awaiting those who are faithful to Jesus. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. We all want to get there someday, right? We want to get to heaven. No crying, no pain with God forever. And knowing what lies ahead, reflecting on what lies ahead, if you're a faithful disciple of Jesus, helps you to overcome fear because you know what eternity will look like. But I'll tell you today, getting there, getting to that point, is nothing that you should take for granted. I'm always interested how at funerals, you know, people say that the deceased is in a better place. It's just a lot, it's just a natural response that people have. Even though they don't pay a lot of attention, they may not talk about how they really live their life here on earth, right? They must be in a better place. That's what people think. Maybe it's a way of coping. I don't know. But my third and final point is the most excellent way. Jesus didn't design us just to be recipients of love. He designed us to follow his perfect example and to give agape love to others. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, it says, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So let me paraphrase. It's not religion that God values. You can go to church, you can give your tithe, you can serve the poor, you can pray three times a day, you can memorize the entire Bible, and you know what? None of those things are bad. But God is not impressed with your pious life. He's not. What God is impressed with is your love. Your love for others. Because without love, as the scripture says, you are nothing. Love is the most excellent way. And that's why Jesus says in John 13, 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Could Jesus have put it any more plainly? I don't think so. Everyone, the whole world, will recognize the true followers of Jesus by their love for each other. Love is the most excellent way. So do you want to know if our church is made up of real disciples of Jesus? Well, then as Jesus said, look for true agape love. People are, they should be loving each other the way Jesus loved loved us, right? Are they laying down their lives for each other? And I have news for you. Church is not just about a Sunday service. Sunday service is great. But no, church is not just about Sunday, right? The South Bay Church is full of sinners like me. And that's why we 
We are in each other's lives. You know, we meet throughout the week with each other. Uh, we build deep relationships with each other. We share our junk with each other. We encourage each other. You know, we challenge each other. We serve each other. We eat chili together. <laughs> which my wife suffers for later, <laughs> severely. Um, my wife, yeah. Uh, no, I'm talking about me. Yeah. Yeah. So, we are in each other's lives, for sure. So another example, changing the subject. My wife was ill recently. Example of agape love. My wife was ill, and our family group brought meals for us for a whole week because she couldn't cook. That is agape love. You know, my boys, they love hanging out with people from church. So much so they, always, they ask us, like, who's coming over tonight? It's like just normal for them. They love it. We meet with disciples every week. We, hope, we get open with each other. We help each other. 1 John 3, 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. When it comes to agape love, talk is cheap. <clears throat> it's all about your actions. Agape love is obvious. And when people see it, they can't argue with it. Because it's pure. And it's honorable. And it's true. And it's what the Apostle James calls pure and faultless religion. So... It's about love. You know what? I'm, I'm so encouraged to, to see so many examples of agape love in our fellowship. I see people laying down their lives, laying down their time, laying down their money, laying down their talents to serve people in need. <coughs> people that are following the most excellent way. So a few examples. Dave and uh, Mary. Are this, when I think agape love, they just pop into my mind. Dave and Mary Atkins are some of the most serving, loving people I know. They lead our region's community service effort. They're just in so many people's lives. They're in our lives. They're shepherds. They just lay it, all, lay it on down for God. I love it. I want to lift up Rudy and Yvonne Casillas and their community group. You know, they are on their own accord. They've started basically on their own initiative. They've started a program to feed the homeless. They, they put food together and they go out to Santa Monica and they find homeless people and they distribute it themselves. They did that on their own. That's agape love. We have a number of teens that have gone through Hope Youth Corps. Raise your hand if you've gone through Hope Youth Corps. Okay, so Ryan Toomey, some others have done it. Gone to places like India to help people that are suffering. You know, people that are like lepers and children that are in need. We've had Hope Brigades that have gone to the Philippines, have gone to Central America and other places, Mexico, to bring medical and dental support and, and you know, education and all kinds of support for people that are in need there. Lift up Robert and Lori Blessing. Robert and Lori Blessing have started a, a ministry here called the In Motion Program. And it's a program that's focused on helping people overcome difficult life circumstances. It could be anything. People that are having difficulties in life. That just started and I hear it's going very, very well. Ren Hornwood and Nancy Hornwood. hope they're here today. Ren and Nancy have started the Financial Peace University. We already have 30 people signed up. Some people from the community have signed up even that want to come to this because Ren and Nancy went through this program. It's helped them financially to get out of debt and they want to pay it forward. It's agape love. Eric Manji, Brian Adams, lead our chemical recovery ministry. You know, helping people that have addictions. You know, we have Jay Johnson who keeps our ushering going. 
Uh, we have our worship and sound team that puts on this incredible service every Sunday that we can just take for granted. And by the way, get here on time, please, so they can be encouraged. Please. We have over a dozen disciples right now that are teaching our, kid and, our kids and kingdom kids, teaching them the word of God. You know, we have family group leaders, we have shepherds, we have community group leaders that volunteer to lead and to care and take, take care of people. Agape love. And if you're visiting with us today, anyone in this church that's a disciple will, is willing to sit down and spend time with you to study the Bible, to do a personal Bible study, much like the one I went through when I first came out to church for the first time, to show you what we believe, but also more importantly, what, what God wants for your life. And that's how we show ourselves to be his disciples, by loving people enough to show them the truth in the scriptures. So you see, we all have choices for how we use our time here on earth. And frankly, it's quite easy to walk out the doors here this morning and, and feel good that you took time to worship God. Think to myself, ah, God, it's a great time of worship. I bet you're proud of me that I spent two hours on my Sunday going to church. And I'm really looking forward to Revelation 21, God. I'm really looking forward to going to heaven. But I'm going to go back to my self-consumed life now. And I'll see you next Sunday. God is not impressed with your religious life. He's impressed with your love. And don't underestimate what I'm saying because this is an issue of salvation. If you just take one thing away from today, remember, agape love is the way to salvation. If you don't love, you don't know God. Now before you get all worked up, let me assure you, you know, we don't believe that we're saved by works. We don't believe that. We're saved by God's grace. And there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And as the scriptures say, we're all sinners. And our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. We believe that. However, if you've tasted the deep and the rich agape love of God, and if you don't live your life in response to that, I fear for you. But don't take it from me, take it from the apostles who learned from Jesus himself. Uh, John, in, in 1 John chapter 3, next slide, Sherwin, says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You want to be forgiven of your sins? Then love. James says in, in James 4, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but no, does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So it's not our deeds themselves that save us, but your deeds are evidence of where your heart is, and evidence of whether you really have agape love. So what is your response to the love of God? God is rich in love. What's your response going to be? Decide today how you're going to respond, because you have to respond. No response is a response. 
Maybe you need to go beyond just going to church on Sunday and decide to invest time with us to study the Bible, to know what God really wants for your life. Not what you think he wants, but what he knows you want and what he tells us in the scriptures. Respond to God's love that way. Or maybe you need to humble yourself to what you've read in the scriptures. Even if it contradicts what you're taught or even if it's inconvenient for you to believe it. Respond to God's love. Maybe you need to take action to love those who are hurting right around you. There's plenty of suffering right here in South Bay. Spiritual suffering and physical suffering. Respond to God's love. <clears throat> and maybe it's time just to set fear aside and step out in some area of your life and have faith because perfect love drives out fear. <clears throat> but now that you've tasted that God is rich in love, don't let it be without an impact in your life. God is gracious and compassionate. <clears throat> He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. He gives us what we need, and you have nothing to fear. So let's follow the most excellent way. Thank you.